Sergeant John Gonzalez is going to talk to us about the, his role in CIU. How would you frame this? Well, we're going to talk about basically CIU's responsibilities. So my role is uh, along with the rest of the detectives because there's there's so many different, um, I guess, facets to what we do. So kind of the anatomy of a right. crisis intervention unit. Right, right. Um, so we'll start off. Um, one of the things is, or one of the most important things we do, obviously, and I was asking, um, I don't know if it was San Juan County, how they do their follow-up. Right. One of the things, one of our main responsibilities is, and excuse my voice, I was yelling at the basketball game a lot last night. Um, <laughs> Did it work? Yeah, Cal, there's one. So um, one of the main things that we do as a team is we get referrals from the field, kind of like the stuff that we're talking about here in, in this echo meeting. And then my guys do backgrounds and follow-ups. So what, what they try to do is get people that are violent or have access to weapons and have the potential for violence, but be, basically because of their mental illness. So we get a lot of referrals that, hey, this guy's just a jerk, and he claims he has depression, or he um, has, he says he has PTSD, but he's just being, you know, an ass. So we don't necessarily work those as a unit. We really work the people that the things that they're doing are caused by their mental illness. So I'll get, I mean, we can get up to 300 referrals a month from the field from Adult Protective Services, from CYFD, from the jails. I'll read all those referrals and then the stuff that fits our criteria, I'll assign it to the detectives. Uh, Bonnie's on, on those teams and I'll let her go into just for a, a couple minutes what, what they do as far as their home visits. Um, and then we'll go on to the next topic. So when I assign something to the home teams, what do you guys usually do? So, uh, Bonnie Marius with APD. So, initially, we will do a background a threat assessment, start looking into um, any type of reports that might come from surrounding areas um, on links and seeing where we're at. For the most part, it's very hard to kind of see where uh, meth induced psychosis, drug induced psychosis, or alcohol induced psychosis plays into it. And that usually comes with a lot of reports saying that they're intoxicated or that they're, um, they're looks like they're high on something. Um, it's kind of hard to sort those ones out. And we do get a lot of referrals that have that dual diagnosis of mental health issues plus the drug-induced psychosis. And a lot of times when they take them to the hospital, if the hospital gets any kind of wind that they're on drugs, they'll kick them out immediately, right? They won't Excuse usually me? keep them. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Like that. Thank you. So go on, sir. Um, so initially, that's really hard for us to figure out. But um, for the most part, we really do try to separate those two and see if it's just the drugs that are causing the violent behavior or if it's the alcohol that's causing the violent behavior. Um, so after that, after the initial, we'll go to a, uh, a home visit. And once we do the home visit, kind of see who's in the home, what kind of life they're living, do they need resources, um, and that's where our crisis specialists come in to play. And then we see where we can go next. Do they need to go to the hospital right right this second, or can it be postponed and we'll come back and visit in a week? Um, are they checking in with their mental health doctors, primary care doctors? 
whether or not they um, need to or not. And then for the most part, the field will actually notify us once we've been out there because they'll do a hit call history and they'll notify us if there's a call for service like that night or the night before and send us an email. And that's very helpful for us because then we go out that next day and just talk to them and say, hey, we heard that you were having a rough day yesterday. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? And our clinicians do a very good job. They go out with the teams that do the home visits and they're able to um, do their little checklist. It's a easy flowing team and um, just kind of let them do their, their thing as far as talking and assessing. And then we get to stand by and kind of create that rapport with the family that, hey, the police officers are here, but we're not the bad police officers that they associate most uniformed police officers with. So um, that, that seems to be helpful. Like uh, we have a gentleman that won't talk to any uniformed police officers, but the family will let us as detectives come into the home. So it's a better rapport building that we're in plain clothes too. And most people with mental illness like Batman. So Batman you get to wear Batman t-shirts. They respond well to that. <clears throat> Another aspect of what they do, and I'll let her uh, go into that too, is our SharePoint. So all the information we have, and, and she'll talk about it more, goes into a database uh, called SharePoint. And I guess it's not a database. But... Oh, you said the word database. Sorry, it's not a database. Um, we do utilize the SharePoint. It is helpful. Um, it's accessible by our RTCC, which uh, the officers in the field have access to. What that does is show what kind of uh, what kind of what kind of work history we are doing. Um, whenever I enter a SharePoint, I have a background um, column where I do, okay, this subject has been, uh, you know, arrested multiple times for aggravated battery or fighting with police officers or mental health transports, or I'm not finding any history on this person at this time. Uh, that's helpful for the field because then they get to see that while this, you know, we should use caution with this person because there is a history of fighting, Whereas on the other hand, okay, well, there's no history, but looks like CIU is definitely working him. Um, they're, they were out there last week. There's yeah. stuff that we could put in there, like triggers, things you can talk about that won't upset them. Um, that way the field officers know that, hey, if I go to this guy's house, he doesn't like me to talk about his mother or his dogs. Or Religion. or if I talk about his, his kids, that's a, a rapport builder for us. And that's easy for them to find. Yeah, matter of fact, most of the time, the dispatchers give them that information when they're on their way to the call. Nice. Also, I'll put in the SharePoint um, hazards like giant dogs, uh, video cameras, if there are video cameras on there, just as... Weapons. Officer involved, um, officer involved incidents occur. We don't want them to be um, scared, startled, or anything like that. So they can focus mostly on the de-escalation part of those things. Um, also, yeah, like Tasia was saying, weapons. If I have noticed there's a sword behind the door, well, I'll definitely note that there's a sword behind the door. Uh, and triggers definitely are a big one. You know, don't talk about religion. Don't talk about mom. That's definitely big, and I usually put those up top with in either red or bold, just so that way it's um, caught right away by the RTCC and forwarded on to the field officers. Yeah, if they're known to carry weapons, what kind of weapons, if they have military background, if they have a background in, in ground fighting or, or anything like that that can help the officers with their safety, all that stuff goes in there. Nice. Um, 
another important another thing that that that's important is is our i guess what we do is called the cit program a lot of people don't understand that the program is not just detectives um and most experts talk about a, a five pillar approach so uh, one of those pillars obviously is the consumer collaboration and education but another important part of of uh, a cit program is training and we have a big um a big component to what we do and i'll let detective lawrence Saavedra talk about the training we do um because it's kind of consumed us the last yeah. year and a half but another part of a successful cit program is uh training so i'll let uh detective Saavedra touch base about that a little bit um yeah lawrence Saavedra with cit um or apd cit uh yeah we've, we've taken over um the the biggest block of instruction for cit in the with our cadets which is 57 hours so we have that uh, six month time to get them um the the 40 hours that is mandated by the state in there but then we also have 17 more hours that they give us and actually when we're breaking it down it looks like it's probably closer to 64, 65 hours by the time we're done with Plus it the 40. Wow. so these are what the basic cadets get in the academy right so we start with them and, and uh, that had a, a lot of what we're training them in there has to do with the uh, crisis de-escalization and uh, being able to identify when someone's in crisis what the different ones might be whether it's a mental illness, whether it's just a situational crisis. Um, but then it goes even beyond that, where we start talking about officer self-care, being able to take care of themselves, um, things that they might um, feel like after they've um, had a, a shooting, what they might encounter. Um, so it's kind of a well-rounded thing. We want them to leave um, that academy knowing that while they're on OJT, if they're in, involved in something that they can take care of it, whether it be a, a mental health or behavioral health crisis or or any other crisis the crisis could be with them they could you know after the shooting we, we want them to understand that it could be them and that they need to seek help with that um i think we're doing right now we're at 16 hours of uh role role playing scenario based training that we do with them so after we do active listening in their communications blocks then they're actually um put in scenario-based type training where we facilitate and coach them, teaching them how to speak to people and what to do, um, as well as keeping their officer safety up while they're, while they're learning to talk to these uh, individuals in crisis. But that's the, that's the bulk of our, our training for them though. And we also do, I guess we picked up the, the 16 hours that they do for our PSAs, our public safety. Right. AIDS, and so we're, we're taking that on as well. Well, and for the last two years, um, <clears throat> what happened was when the DOJ came in, they liked our unit a lot. They rode with us, they met with us, they went on home visits. So part of the DOJ agreement was they wanted our unit to be bigger, but they also wanted our unit to train 40% of the department in crisis intervention. So the department decided, oh, well, if they love us so much, let's train everybody in crisis intervention. Uh, we explained to the department that that wasn't the best route, that wasn't best practices, and that wasn't even what the DOJ asked. Needless to say, they told us to do it. We did it for two years and got everybody trained on crisis intervention, the 40-hour uh, block that's above and beyond what we do in the academy. And then the DOJ came in and said, yeah, that's not what we meant. 
So we are now doing what's called an enhanced CIT course, which now we're going to train 40% of the department like they originally <laughs> asked. Um, so we're, we're another thing my guys do um, is write curriculum. And now we're in the process of trying to write the curriculum, which, you know, cops have no clue or we didn't have any clue how to write curriculum that was college based. The way we used to do our training was APD would look at somebody who was in armed robbery and they, they would call a detective. They would put together a PowerPoint and go teach somebody, you know, what armed robbery does. So that's the way we had always done it our whole careers. When the DOJ came in, they said, yeah, you're totally doing it wrong. So now they want us to do um, needs assessments, teach off the Addy model, write curriculum, student handbooks, instructor handbooks. So that's another thing that we're doing at our unit. Um, so now we have to train 40% of the department on what's called an enhanced CIT, which we're not even totally sure how we're going to do that or what we're going to teach. We have, we have a decent idea, but um, so that's another part of what we're doing. Um, another thing and uh, excuse me, another thing that that the, um, a successful crisis intervention program has is a vibrant crisis system. And I need the guys in, in um, San Juan had talked about it. We don't necessarily have one here in Albuquerque either. Um, you know, we basically have the choice of jails or hospitals and nothing in between. Um, like a crisis center. Right, like a crisis center. I think that one of the talks is that 18 uh, cent tax thing, or the 18 million that we got from the eighth of a cent tax is going to go into a crisis center. I'm not sure, but I mean, that's that can help us a lot. Um, what would that be? Could you talk about like what you envision a crisis center doing or being? So, we, so yeah, well, we were talking about this money being allocated for, I'm sorry, Tasia, I know you can't see me, Tasia Sullivan, EPD. Um, no, it's okay, I'm good for that. Um, when we were talking about that money being allocated for um, a crisis center, what was kind of discussed um, just with um, people that are, you know, advocates or interested parties was that it would be like a triage center. Um, ideally a place where people um, who are living with mental illness or families of people um, living with mental illness could seek out care prior to actual law enforcement intervention or um, you know and just be kind of like a one-stop shop for those people to receive um, resources support um, treatment also treatment we want that we want it to have beds because obviously um, beds is like you know the, the most important thing um, and we want people to be able to have a location where they can actually seek out that treatment without being, without having to call the police department. Because when they're calling the hospitals, hospitals are not really able to assist them unless they're in hospital care, and that, and not every circumstance requires that they are, that they're voluntary or involuntary in inpatient care. Um, so what we're seeing is that people that just see a family member deteriorating are calling our unit, saying, I guess. I guess, can you send the guys with guns to go pick up my family member? I don't have any other options, but I mean, we, we know you're the only ones that will, will help my loved one before um, they do something detrimental to themselves or someone else. Uh, so the idea, and I think this would greatly help our unit, is that some of these, um, some of these calls could be mitigated um, 
if we just had a crisis center where family members didn't have to use law enforcement to intervene when their family members really haven't reached that point yet. As far as we know, or anybody on the network know, does anything like this exist in the state? Not to Not my to knowledge, no. Right. No. Anything in Las Cruces? Hi, Sergeant Cord with the Las Cruces. Um, under one of our lawsuits, um, back from 2004 to 2005, they uh, we were supposed to put together a, a, a crisis triage center, and basically we've I, I went to several county commission meetings because they were trying to make it a voluntary facility, and what did it, what ended up happening is, is at this uh, at these commission meetings I had to finally. Um, we couldn't utilize their facility if it was uh, a voluntary facility. This facility has been built, it's standing vacant for three years. Our biggest, wow. biggest problem is because there's no money in it, nobody will, will um, operate it. So we actually have a crisis triage center, but it stood vacant for three years. It's been, so nothing, they, but a, it's been nothing but a fight to see who is going to try and operate it. Um, they brought out out of state. They brought out of state. But I just got chills. They have brought out of state uh, facilities to try and, and bid on it, and they're all excited about it. And yeah, well, we'll 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 take the bid. But then when they find out they're not getting very much state funding and it's not going to be a profit for them, they pull out. Right. Yeah. That's right. been a problem. So it's it's basically a facility that's sitting vacant for three years. That's going to be your number one problem. Is finding somebody to staff the revenue. Right, and that's why that's why they did this this tax. I think was to try and create revenue. But I want so so. Did you say that one of the original issues was that because it was a voluntary um, setting? So was there a conflict then that if you if you brought somebody in and they were in your custody, releasing them to a voluntary setting? Is that was yes. that the issue with it being voluntary? Interestingly enough, when they were getting ready to open it up for a, a tour, and all of the, the uh, doors locked from the outside so that you can't enter from the outside, but you, from the inside, you could just walk right out the door. And I said, this is not going to work. Law enforcement, be opposite. law enforcement will not be able to operate. We will not be able to bring our PCs here. I said, this would be great if you know, we're looking at family to, to utilize this facility because um, <clears throat> it's still going to be voluntary. If, if family takes their loved one there, they can walk out the door. Even if the 72-hour hold is put on, I don't see where it's going to be beneficial because the facility, if it's voluntary, is going to open, let them walk out the door. If you have a hold, it's going to have to be an involuntary facility. This was the fight that I had to put on with the county commission, that it's it's not going to be a facility that you can put a 72-hour hold on somebody, even if it is long. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but so, but so, I mean, because we have the place. If it's involuntary, they come like to a hospital, right? Like a psychiatric hospital, and that becomes the crisis center for people who who are on a hold. So, is there a place for both for a voluntary? No place and. Well, I, I don't mean I don't mean in that one building. I, I mean, should we have both types of places? Oh, absolutely. One with, with unlocked doors and one with. A voluntary crisis triage center and an involuntary. But the problem is, yeah. still getting somebody to staff both of them or get people. Right. Yeah. Oh, sure. Right. It comes down to money. 
I think yeah. I think that it's essential with the non-voluntary one that you also have people that can help treat the substance <clears throat> abuse because the dual diagnosis issue is humongous here. It's killing us. It's killing us with, you know, you have substance abuse with mental health issues and no one's willing to treat both in one area. Sure. I think that's a huge thing that needs to happen here. Or at least in my vision, if we're going to have a triage center, it needs to be essential that you can treat both in one area. All right, and we want a one-stop shop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Any other questions about that? The dream? Yeah. And, right, right. Anything <laughs> else to say about the kind of the crisis? Well, so, so is that, um, so in Las Cruces, that was, it sounds like that was born from a lawsuit and then it didn't kind of, nothing happens. It's an empty building. So is, is that still being worked on? Are people still trying to find a solution? Or has that been just kind of given up? This has been a problem that's been going on for the eight years that I've been involved in, in CIT. Oh my gosh. This was supposed to be put together back in like 2007 or 2008. Um, and it, it was worked on, but what they, they didn't call it crisis crisis. And what they said in the lawsuit is basically the, the county needs to come up with a facility that is friendly to mental health that we can take law enforcement and take people to take their PCs to, and they can get filtered into the mental health community. At that time, we didn't even have a mental health community, to be honest with you. It was right. a bunch of facilities that wouldn't work together. But they, they did get the facility built. The money was, was spent appropriately to build the facility. The only thing is they never looked at was how the hell are you going to staff it? And who's going to operate it? Because that's been the opportunity. Even as a voluntary facility, it's still not going to bring the money that is needed. Right. And even if it was, law enforcement still can't use it, so it was a fruitless idea. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's one, that's one of the big problems that law enforcement has. And, I mean, we can do everything we can on our end, but if we don't have somewhere to take them, right. other than jail or the hospitals, and that's one of the parts of a vibrant CIT program. you got to have community collaboration you got to have a behavioral health system that works right. Right. so so what would something in between look like like so if it's not a hospital but or, or or in other words is what we need is a way to like triage like here's somebody who who is in our custody because we got called out but um we think that this person they have like imminent risk of harm to self or others whereas these other people are just kind of in crisis and we don't think that they're so dangerous or do you go through like a crisis center and at the crisis center a doc or, or a healthcare person triage well and we're almost at the point with apd that we have so many people that are the violent ones that we don't even have time to talk about the people that are obviously mentally ill that are living in recovery but right they, right they're they're hearing voices help, but, yeah. they're they're uh, calling cops out all day long there's right. nothing in between no, exactly. There's nothing in between either the hospital or the jail or leaving them home. The I think there can be a triage center for public and family members, and a triage a triage center hospital. for us is taking them to a mental health hospital. Right, right. right. Because we can't take them unless it meets the statutory requirements anyway. Right, right. Or if they said they want it, if we went up there and they said, yeah, we want to go, you could probably yeah. drop them off at the triage center. Right. But you wouldn't check them in. They would have, that would have to be that self. It would be like Matt's for yeah. mental health. Yeah. Exactly. But I, I don't think it could be one stop for law enforcement. It might be one stop for for the community to go. And right. in there you have people like uh, uh, from the DD waiver in there and from uh, Adult Protective Services and 
um, St. Martin's and right. Right. Um, other mental health. You could have someone from press there, someone from UNM, and then when they go there, those people can even, you could even have uh, case managers, case right. workers there. But, no, and that's, that's, that's the, the idea. Is, is a, a stop, a one-stop shop is not even a solution, even if we had it. Right. because we need a community mental health system. So like I trained in Ohio and in Ohio, they had a community mental health system. Like it was awesome. Anybody in Ohio, whether you had insurance or not, everybody could get access to a caseworker and a mental health provider because they, 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 you know, they have many more resources than we do. And they've been working on this for years. It's, it's kind of, they've been at it for a long time. And so there was in, in Columbus, there was a place called Access and you could, that was kind of the starting point where you could be brought there by law enforcement or you could walk in, be brought there by a family member, concerned other, and they would triage you. And then because they had a community mental health infrastructure, not only could they triage you, but they give you an appointment, right? Because if we have a crisis, let's say we have this beautiful building and we staff it. And they go there, and so we keep them for 24, 48, 72 hours, crisis averted, right? Right. But are they any better off in terms of tomorrow's crisis? So that, you know, and that's the other thing is there's really, a, there's limited resources when it comes to follow-up. And I think that we're kind of, we don't, we don't provide treatment. We don't provide care. Um, we simply, you know, our teams go out and do assessments, like Bonnie was saying, but they it's almost like by default hospitals are now saying okay well we don't have a good discharge plan for this individual so we're going to say that yeah. our discharge plan is referring them to cit right yeah right that's that to me is insane <clears throat> or st martin right um and so you know i know we often use things like the act team and some of these in-home um service type uh, case management teams but they're completely inundated and they're oh, yeah they're full the and weight and requirements yeah, yeah. Are, are very um yeah. Are, you know, so inaccessible. So I think that would be another another thing that I think that could be kind of that middle ground is having actually uh, actual robust case management systems where they'll go to the homes and keep working with these people. It shouldn't be that police officers have to come check on you once a week to make sure you're taking right. your meds. That's really, do you know what I mean? Um, That's where we're at. It's kind of where we're at. Though. This is where we're at, right? Actually, our 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 crisis triage center was. Um, was modeled after Ohio. The wow. thing that I, I told, even when the process was going on, I said, but the state of New Mexico is not Ohio. Right. Um, we have no mental health system. We have no infrastructure in mental health. So basically you're, you're building this on an Ohio model that has an, an infrastructure for mental health. Right. Even, even if we take our, our violent people there, they're going to call us to bring them to come pick them up because mm -hmm. it's really that's not designed for violent type people. I think right. Ohio deals with them differently. And this was my whole point I would bring up to them. And also the fact is if, so they're there for 23 hours and 59 minutes. If they can't find a facility for them, they're released. And my other point was if you don't have a bed anywhere in the state, where are you going to take them? Right. Right. No, exactly. It's exactly. in Ohio. And it's, uh, yeah, it, no, it, it was so amazing to be in Ohio and have the system and then come back here and see how little we have. And unfortunately, you know, the, the mental health system that we had and that was at least growing and doing something got 
destroyed by our current gubernatorial administration. Um, it's that set us back. You know, it said, I know you guys are hurting down there in Las Cruces. We got some organizations down there closed. We got organizations up here closed all over the state. So bus tickets to Ohio. Start <laughs> handing them out. <laughs> we're kind of, we're up against the clock a little bit if anybody has any questions. Yeah, or... anything else to say kind of, or questions about kind of, so this the CIU infrastructure, Las Cruces, does your infrastructure differ much from what APDs in terms of the, the crisis intervention unit and the different roles? I know, I would say our roles are, have, aren't any different. Um, you know, I've, I've been up and toured Albuquerque several times. I know you guys have a lot more resources than we do. Um, you know, we, Shocking. We, we, yeah, well, it's, it's, we, we're in the southern part of the state. We kind of get forgotten about. Um, and that's why we've we've had to build up so heavily because the police department constantly gets burdened with the problem of taking care of <clears throat> um, The only thing we can do is take them to the ER, and if the ER can't find a bed for them, then they're back out on the street in 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so I know you guys in Las Cruces were um, involved in a lawsuit. Do you guys have any, a detective unit there, or is it all uh, uniform field guys? We, you know what, and that's interesting. We find a, our better success is from uniform. Wow. So uh, we don't, we have one full time CIT officer. We have how many across patrol? Eleven. <laughs> we have ten officers spread across patrol. SROs and CID. Um, so it's been effective for us actually. We do our follow ups still in uniform. Um, we have, we've had success with it. I haven't seen a problem with it. Well, that's neat. That's interesting. Now, when you say more success, have you tried the different, or, or it's just that you haven't noticed a lack of success with uniforms? We haven't had any. I got to admit, they have not put us in a detective type situation. Uh, Mostly because of finances, I'm sure. But the, we spread it across control. Our uniform officers seem to do a very well, a very well, good job. I, yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, anything else to say about? Nice. No. no. Thanks for sharing with us your the kind of structure, the responsibilities, the roles.